This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. And thank you, Scott Slade. It's always great to be saving money on your power bill, using technology wisely, and living a more sustainable life. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Eccles. Welcome to Energy Matters. We do want to help you save money on your power bill and to use technology wisely and to live a more sustainable life. My co-host is always from Decatur, Georgia, Casey Boyce. Casey, good hey. morning. How's it going? Good morning. It's a great morning to be saving money and learning more about sustainability. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about sustainability, Casey, because I've just returned from a sustainable town planning conference down at the iconic seaside florida many folks maybe have have driven through there even if you've never stayed there i've technically never stayed in one of their 338 rental homes there and i learned only really about 18 of those people live there Uh, and so it is a rental community uh, and they charge an absolute fortune for those things but it is so it is so unique That entire 30A development, KC, that runs from Inlet Beach on around and reconnects to 98 as you head down to Destin, San Destin, and Pensacola is really quite quite a stretch. They call it the Emerald Coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a really interesting stretch. I was uh, down there with my family in uh, Grayton Beach uh, a few months ago, and that was one of the original resort communities. Um, But of course, Seaside and and Seagrove and all those other places were developed much more recently than that. So, Tim, you were down there for a, a sustainability conference. What kinds of things did you guys talk about there? Well, I gave the keynote address, and I want to go just—I want to go through some of the things that I challenged the group with. And there were town planners there from Panama City, from Crestview, from other places around the coast, and then there were a lot of out-of-town people there from both Georgia, Tennessee, mainly a southeastern mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but as I kicked it off, Casey, I said one of the things that has been most hard to agree on is actually the definition of sustainability, right? What what does it mean? So let me ask you, Casey, I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> what, what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, so to me, sustainability is about operating, working, living, whatever you call it, in a way that can go on forever, right? So if you think about environmental sustainability, it is about our using resources from the environment in a way that the environment can replenish what we use, whether it's, uh, you know, trees or, you know, food or, you know, what have you. I suggested that there are some things that are, you know, kind of required. Uh, to be in the sustainable definition. But Seaside and the Seaside Institute and what they're doing there is really a lot about architecture, right? Mm-hmm. It's about it's about making it pedestrian friendly. It's about having, you know, having beauty, uh, having things kind of fit together, being able to take, you know, a, a piece of land that's kind of away from the beach as you go further in from from Seaside in those communities and be able to have a marketable uh, piece of property there where people feel like, wow, this is beautiful. Mm-hmm. All this fits together. But Casey, one of the first things that I noticed, and I had noticed this before on previous trips down there, is that they don't recycle in Walton County, Florida. Huh. Yeah. So there's there's no recycling. And, and not only did you know, one of the head of Seaside tell me this, and I didn't actually believe him. I thought, you know, they're getting, you know, waste management is getting this somewhere, and they're sorting through this, and and, and they're they're eventually recycling. So I stopped a waste management truck, uh, <laughs> and, and and I asked the driver. I said, I see, I see you guys loading this up. I noticed there's no recycle bins. Are you taking this and sorting this? He said, nope, we're taking it straight to the landfill. It all goes in the landfill. Uh, And I'm going, okay, how sustainable can you market this if you are not recycling anything? I mean, does that bother you, Casey? 
Well, yes, in in one sense it does. In another, I mean, it's kind of the reality of things, right, Tim? I mean, uh, the market for these raw materials, what people get is really, really small dollars. And so there's not a lot of economic incentive. And there are towns in Georgia, I'm not going to name names here, Tim, but that have curbside recycling programs that take that, you know, quote unquote recycling and take it straight to the landfill. And, you know, as, as you know, and, and our listeners know, I live in Decatur, Georgia, and, you know, we we struggled with that, really finding someone who would take it and actually recycle it. And, you know, City of Decatur actually does a recycling audit to make sure that that the stuff that we say is getting recycled is getting recycled. But it's tough. The economics just aren't there. You know, our our good friend Ben Carswell, who's been on with us uh, many times before, he's the director of conservation for Jekyll Island. He's just written an article, and you can go to the Jekyll Island Authority's website and see this on sustainability and kind of going through these definitions and what it means for that island to be sustainable and how you define that and when it stops being that. Mm -hmm. But recently I discovered that Jekyll Island – uh, through waste management, they're not technically recycling their recyclables. They are going to a waste management special syngas facility, and the bottles are being burned hmm. for a, a, another type of fuel. And mm-hmm. I, I know Ben, it, it bothered him a lot about that. And then he asked me, hey, Tim, is this do you think this is hypocritical or do you think this in some way, you know, is wrong? And I'm going, well, you're, you're not putting it in the landfill. You are using it for another purpose. And Casey, if you think about this circle of life, really, that uh, that sustainability is where you're using everything. If you're using the recyclables to make some kind of syngas or some synthetic fuel of some sort, and then you're taking the rest of it to a landfill, you know, and it's becoming methane gas and being used to turn a, a, a turbine and turn a generator. That still technically fits sustainability for me. Hmm. That's interesting. It's certainly better than just tipping it in the landfill. So, uh, Tim, what else did you guys talk about besides recycling and, and your deep dive into the recycling stream there? You know, I talked about how that sustainability is really more like a puzzle than something with moving parts because if you think about something with moving parts and a lot of gears if you pull out one thing it messes up the other and that's not the case with sustainability in my opinion is that you can have a community that's that's doing things that make sense for the community and so just think about putting together a jigsaw puzzle you can still see uh you know, the puzzle and make out what it is, even if you only have, say, 75% of the pieces there. Um, You know, but with a moving parts type of example, you pull out one, one or two gears and the whole thing breaks down. So I think that communities need to do, Casey, what makes sense for them. So maybe they're doing lighting, maybe they're doing efficiency, a solarized program like, like Decatur, has done. I mean, Casey, you serve on the zoning board over there. Does does this definition issue come up with you guys in Decatur, which is I view as one of the most green communities in the state? Yeah, I don't know that the definition issue comes up. And by the way, I really like your your framing of it as a puzzle rather than gears. I mean, if you think about it, it's about a journey to be more sustainable. Um, it's not about it is or is not. It's not a black and white thing necessarily. I think where you know I've seen us get tripped up as a community is really getting to um, the conversations about well, you know, what is important to Decatur, and you know, who do we want to be in the next ten years? We're actually in the midst of a strategic planning process right now, where that question is really very much at the forefront, and a lot of the pieces, whether it's transportation or land use, certainly tie into sustainability. Um, but we, we, you know, haven't started with that question of what is sustainability. You know, I think, Casey, you brought up a really good point that is the community being forthright? Are they deceiving others by telling them to recycle and then dumping it in in a landfill? So I think honesty, integrity here is important. There is such a temptation, I think, out there for officials to put forward this image, right? Uh, And 
and then if you're not doing it, then it really does look bad, and they're just hoping that no one else, you know, kind of discovers what's happening. Yeah, I mean, there are things that are meaningful that are not terribly visible, and there are things that are visible that aren't terribly meaningful, right? And so to to give you an example, land use has a tremendous impact on sustainability, uh, including transportation and building emissions and things like that, but people don't really think about it that much. The flip side, and and this is, you know, more for a city of the size of Decatur, uh, plastic bag bans, right? Very visible, but you know what? If Decatur banned plastic bags tomorrow, it would make no impact whatsoever, right? So, you know, there's the optics of the thing and then there's the reality of the thing. And when it it comes to sustainability, it's really about reality. The world doesn't care about optics. The world cares about physics and biology, right? Casey, coming up in the next segment, we're going to bring back our old friend John Noel, uh, me, you, John, and Ryan Sanders in a segment talking about big solar. We're recycling this because the very same issue will be coming back up before us at the Public Service Commission during our integrated resource planning next year in 2022. So I want folks to be kind of thinking about this, and we'll see how much big solar we wind up doing out there, Casey. Sounds good. Hey, stick around. This is Tim Eccles. We'll be right back with a great conversation on large-scale solar. Energy Matters would like to thank GasSouth for its support of the show. GasSouth has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. GasSouth, the difference is good. GasSouth believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit. And the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. GasSouth. The difference is good. Logan Booker, producer of Energy Matters, here for Green Power EMC. From the suburbs to rural farming communities, Georgia is enjoying the benefits of a more sustainable future through the power of solar energy. Available from 38 of Georgia's member-owned electric membership cooperatives, or EMCs, these not-for-profit utilities are harnessing the sun's energy to bring clean, renewable, and affordable electricity to 4.2 million Georgians. For more information, visit www.greenpoweremc.com or contact your local EMC. Welcome back to Energy Matters. It's a radio show to help you save money, to use technology, and to live a more sustainable life. I've got some solar experts in the room with me. My co-host, John Noel, Casey Boyce here, as well as Ryan Sanders, who runs Beltline Energy. He's also the founder of the Large Scale Solar Association in Georgia. Support for Energy Matters comes from Arnold, Golden, and Gregory. AGG takes a business sensibility approach when advising clients. AGG provides industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve success. AGG's transaction, litigation, regulatory, and privacy counselors serve clients in healthcare, real estate, litigation, business transactions, fintech, global commerce, government investigation, logistics, and transportation. AGG subscribes to the belief, not if, but how. We appreciate their weekly support of Energy Matters. Ryan, as you guys do these large projects in Georgia and around the Southeast, do you do anything without a lawyer? I mean, how important are these lawyers to helping you be able to to navigate these waters? Well, they're important. They help us stitch everything together. And uh, we actually work with Arnold Golden and Gregory on a frequent basis. How about that? They help us with our tax pilot agreements. And, um, you know, we we can't do business without them. Yeah. Speaking of uh, South Georgia, we talked in the last segment about 
rural Georgia, South Georgia, middle Georgia, where all these large arrays are going, you and I are working together on a charity project down at Sapelo Island. There's probably a lot of Georgians that have never actually been to Sapelo Island. You catch a ferry in Darien, which is just north of Brunswick, and go over to the island. And, you know, there's a the history of Sapelo kind of tied to Jekyll. Uh, the Sapelo Island Company was originally involved in developing that. But now, uh, now it's uh, a UGA facility there. There's the Reynolds Mansion that the Reynolds family, uh, you know, eventually gave to the state. And there's an old Gula Geechee community that Mr. Reynolds, uh, upon exiting the island, donated some of the land to the former slaves and descendants of slaves there. And there's just a small group of them left, under 100, but... Uh, the Large Scale Solar Association is taking on the idea and project of putting solar on their library. Tell us a little bit about that project. Absolutely, Tim. It's not all about just capital investment in, in rural counties. It's also about engaging with local communities. And all of our members, most of which are national or not from Georgia, are looking for ways to engage. And this is actually a project that was born out of your leadership. And we were happy to, to help support the effort. And we are looking to install a small rooftop solar array uh, in support of the Gula Geechee Library on Sapelo Island. Um, and we're excited about the project. That's yeah. great. Thanks so much for sharing about uh, that uh, that project. And, and I hadn't heard about that before, Tim. So so thanks for bringing that on and having Ryan talk about it. Um, so, so Tim and his colleagues on the Public Service Commission right now are in the midst of uh, uh, an integrated resource plan that the Georgia Power Company is uh, looking at their generation mix over the next couple of years. And, and Ryan, as you look out the next couple of years, what what do you see the future look like for large-scale solar? So the big item that everybody's talking about today is battery storage and how that is going to pair with Boom. intermittent solar yeah. uh, generation. Um, it's really a huge opportunity for solar. Currently in this in this regulated market, um, we will get to a point where we've had enough intermittent capacity on the grid where Georgia Power will say, we've had enough. Batteries allow us to push the frontier a little bit and will actually allow us to have more intermittent solar resource integrated onto the grid than is possible without the battery. So, so let's drill down on that a second. We're going to reach the point, or it's probably already happening, where there's so much solar hitting the grid during a bright sunny day. George Power says, wait, I've already got a lot of generation, infernal combustion uh, generation, uh, natural gas, coal, whatever, online, nuclear. I don't need all this extra solar. You're saying this could be stuck in a battery and then utilized later? Uh, sort of. And just to be clear, we're a long way from reaching our capacity limitations in this Georgia grid with solar right now. We're oh, probably really? three or four gigs away from reaching a point where anybody could argue that we've reached a capacity threshold. But that threshold's in the future, and we can see it out there. Batteries will allow us to push it out. And so storage will allow the solar facility to remove some of the intermittency and be more reliable for the utility company. And in the utility Explain world... Explain intermittency to our, viewer, to our listeners. So with solar, you can't count on us 24 hours a day. Um, we're there when you need us the most i.e. 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon when the sun's blazing, everybody has their air conditionings on, and we're in the state's using you know, a maximum amount of energy. But we're not there on cloudy days. We're not there during when it's raining. We're not there at night. It's so not there this morning. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, the sun hadn't come up. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so this intermittency makes it more difficult to, uh, to interconnect uh, solar resources onto the grid because you have to plan for the ups and downs. The battery allows us to smooth some of that out, and we can be a more reliable partner for the utility company. Ryan, you talked earlier about how much less expensive solar had gotten over the last eight years or so. When you add batteries to that mix, you've you've got to pay for those, right? I mean, are, are they adding to the cost that the the company is going to have to pay for solar resources, or is there value in having that battery there? How does what are the economic look like? That's, That's a great a question. question. <laughs> so the, the, the price goes up, but the value yeah. goes up. So we might be spending a little bit more on the overall system, but we're able to provide power to the utility in such a way that our overall energy generation has more value to them, more net benefit uh, in the parlance of Georgia Power. Uh, give that to me another way. We start producing about the same time the state of Georgia peaks in their energy usage. So about 11 o'clock in the morning when right. everything's ramping up, yes. that's when our solar panels come to life. That's when mine start to rock and so and roll. And so we're ramping up, yeah. we're ramping up, hit about noon, 3, yep. 4 o'clock everything's going well, 
At 5 p.m., solar starts ramping down. Drop off a cliff. The peak energy usage in the state starts ramping down at 6 or 7 p.m. Oh. So there's a differential between that 5 o'clock when we go home and 7 o'clock when the utility can start winding down there. So you're able to keep using that solar later in the day. The oh, battery okay. allows us to push, to shift that production curve from 5 closer to 7. That's great. And the utility company has to have spinning reserves in the background to backfill when we go home at 5. Right. To make sure that that... Fi- so those that spinning reserves stop spinning. Uh, just the not as necessary. And their right. spinning reserves are expensive for the utility company to, uh, to keep waiting in the wings. So I'm really glad that there is a piece of glass between you two guys here because it, it seems like that Let there's often a tension between rooftop scale solar like you've got, John, oh, yeah. and the utility scale solar, Ryan, that you do. So, so tell us about that. Like, wh- why is that? Or am I completely off base here? And, and you know, how do you see that resolving? I would say the, the members of the Georgia Large Scale Solar Association are largely unaware of any tension that goes on. In fact, all of our members are in support of all types of solar. It is the reality here in the state of Georgia that it's a little bit of a zero-sum game. And so we don't find the utility willing to do both a robust behind-the-meter market and a robust utility-scale market. Um, Me being behind-the-meter, right? Okay. Yeah. Me being utility-scale, right. unfortunately. Gotcha. Uh, or, in any event, the utility has shown a... a distinct preference for supply-side utility-scale solar. They can It fits within their existing business model. Low-cost generation, consolidated in one location, transmitted and distributed by the utility company who's in the, mar- who's in the business of selling electrons to their customers. A large-scale solar uh, installation fits right within that business model. When you're on the rooftop, there's only so much margin that can be placed on the cost of production and the cost of sale. And in this utility market, in this... Um, monopoly utility market, Georgia Power is familiar and used to receiving all of the margin from energy sales. Rooftop solar erodes that that margin for them. Interesting. John, so, what do you think about that? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to another subject rather than battle on this. I, 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 uh, I want to ask you about greenies like me, enviros like me, we love solar. Greenies uh, like us. Uh, oh, excuse me. Yes. Well, I'm not being meaning to be. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. You got also pitch to a Republican uh, uh, legislature, Republican PSC, um, and, and so how do how do you create a bipartisan approach to pushing large scale solar? That's, that's a great question. That's one that we have spent countless hours uh, working on. We have a regulatory attorney that's, that's well-versed in the Republican Party here in Georgia. He's been a great navigator for our organization. We have worked hard to differentiate ourselves and our type of solar generation. Um, we've, and Tim can attest to this. We've done numerous um, meetings and workshops and seminars talking about how Consolidated utility-scale generation fits within the conservative platform, and so we've 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 always had friends within the Democratic side of the aisle. We've been working really hard to foster our relationships with the the Republican Party. Here I in think Georgia. you're winning it. I, I think I think the math helps, and I think people just get it. You're absolutely right. When we went down below, when solar utility-scale solar went down below four cents per kilowatt hour, it made it a lot easier to have these conversations. Right. You know, I think on another another episode on another day we've got to talk about the similarities between electric cars and and solar and the difference in the marketing strategy or the messaging that the that the two uh, causes have used in Georgia because the solar folks learn to speak Republican and I'm a Republican and you know you got to talk about economic development with Republicans and my electric car friends never really learned to speak Republican and as a result they were put in a major timeout the legislature whacked them with a $200 plus fee they lost their tax credit uh, they're not allowed in the lanes over in Cobb or Henry County and i think it it boils down to the way that they presented the issues and mm. large scale solar has become such a win-win situation for Georgia. And John, you were state representative. I mean, you love ribbon cuttings. You love getting your picture in the paper just like I do. Mm-hmm. And when these solar arrays come into South Georgia and it helps these poor counties, the, the state representative, the county commission, they're right there on the front page of the newspaper. They're all there. The question is, are they all there voting? You know, everybody likes to go to ribbon cutting, but not a lot of people like to advocate. And not everybody that's at that ribbon cutting actually voted for what they're cutting the ribbon on. And that's a problem. Yeah, so 
I think we'll continue to see more. We'll we'll see uh, exactly what happens, you know, by the end of by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Well, you're listening to Energy Matters, and we certainly not only want to help you save money, but I want to help the whole state save money. And and that's what these large-scale solar arrays are doing. They're actually putting downward pressure on rates. No subsidy, no mandate, no renewable portfolio standard. It's been a great story for Georgia. Well, thanks, Ryan, for being here. Good luck in all your efforts. Thank you very much. And we look forward to seeing you on Sapelo Island throughout the year. Well, you're listening to Energy Matters. I'm Tim Eccles. Stay tuned for more exciting information. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. GERD and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com. Tim Eccles for Marlin Gas Services. As the port continues to grow, more and more trucking companies are using natural gas in their trucks instead of diesel. Marlin Gas Services is helping to usher in this clean opportunity. With their specialized rigs, they create virtual pipelines with all the equipment and expertise to provide reliable, clean natural gas. Marlin Gas is the company that gas utilities, pipeline companies, and industrial facilities turn to. See MarlinGas.com for more information. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by BMVW Auto Sales. COVID-19 has changed everything, even buying a car. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, not only sanitizes every car, but you can buy it online and they'll trailer it to your home anywhere in Georgia and surrounding states. They've used electric cars, plug-in hybrids, and traditional hybrids. Check out the inventory at ev-hybrid.com. That's ev-hybrid.com. They have a three-day loaner period as well if you want to make sure electric works for you. Check them out at ev-hybrid.com. Good morning. I'm Susan Kidd. I'm on the campus of Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, where I'm the executive director for the Center for Sustainability, where we have pledged to be climate neutral by 2037. So we're looking at all the ways we can do the highest efficiency um, energy projects on campus. And one of those, your topic for today is geothermal. We're really excited that we have about 10% of our million square feet of usable space on campus is now the HVAC, the heat, ventilation, and air conditioning is 100% on geothermal. And in fact, in both buildings, the domestic hot water is also heated by residual heat from the geothermal system. One of these is a 1951 former science center, Campbell Hall, that's now partially residence hall, part offices, part classrooms. The other is a 1905 building, Rebecca Scott Hall, that has both a residence hall and offices and our visitor center for future students. We've proven now for a number of years that geothermal is an effective, energy efficient way to provide HVAC, but also just an excellent system. No problems with the system, performs really well and easily to maintain both comfort and efficiency with our geothermal. We have two fields. One is adjacent to each of those two buildings where the wells were dug about 500 feet deep, then of course connected just below ground and then run to the building to operate that system. If you want to know more about geothermal at Agnes Scott, you can go to www.agnescott.edu and go to the sustainability webpage. Thank you. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce, your host, and I'm here with a couple of guys from Earth Energy, Marcus Sintas and Richard Slowey. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Good to be here. And you guys are in totally different parts in the country. In fact, we've kind of almost got all four corners here represented. I'm down in Georgia. And, and Richard, where are you? Massachusetts and Connecticut. And, and Marcus, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm down in sunny San Diego. So we're missing the Pacific Northwest, but okay, we, we'll, we'll give those guys a pass. So uh, you guys do uh, geothermal energy and you know for our listeners 
Why don't you tell uh, tell them kind of what geothermal energy is uh, and just do like the high level. We'll get into some of the details here in a minute, but do the high level. And then I want to talk a little bit about how you got involved in the work that you're doing. So uh, first, just what is it that you're doing? We're providing geothermal energy for heating, cooling and domestic hot water, primarily focusing on apartment buildings and condominium developments, as well as small office buildings and commercial spaces. We got into the business uh, formally last year, and unlike geothermal power plants, we use wells that go down about, uh, on the average, three to 500 feet, and we're just exchanging heat with the earth, uh, whether we're in the cooling mode or the heating mode. Uh, this is not geothermal power plant production, where they drill down four or 5,000 feet, and they tap the hot energy of the earth to run electrical power plants. This is a practical solution for fossil fuel free heating and cooling and production of hot water. Yeah, so I actually had the chance a couple of years ago to go over to Iceland and they use geothermal for power production. And you're right, I mean, they're really close to the Earth's magma, I guess. So there's an eruption going over on over there right now. And they actually superheat the water. They bring it through, they run it through steam turbines just like they do. But, you know, that's kind of a, a fairly rare occurrence. There are a couple of places in the U.S. where you can do that kind of thing, but it's certainly not like uh, what they can do in Iceland. And, you know, Richard, uh, longtime listeners of the show may know that, you know, in my house, I've got uh, geothermal HVAC. Um, can you can you guys help folks understand like, OK, so I've got a very efficient house. I've, I've you know, did geothermal uh, when we did. It. You guys are doing this geothermal solution for small commercial. Why is that a much more efficient solution for heating and cooling? What geothermal brings to the uh, heating and cooling world is it brings a stable source of heat or cooling below your feet, starting at about 10 feet down to a thousand feet. You have a constant temperature. In the northern part of the country, that typically runs around 55 degrees Fahrenheit year-round, day in and day out. And down south, it's a little bit warmer. It's up into the 60s, day in and day out. Having that constant source of temperature allows a system to very efficiently either extract heat from the earth or dissipate heat into the earth. You can completely eliminate the burning of gas or oil in a building or in a home and use the 55-degree temperature of the earth and allow the heat pump to uh, increase that temperature up to 110 degrees. And of course, down here in the south, a lot of folks use electric for heat. Um, but, you know, in the northeast, Richard, where you are, a lot of people are using heating oil and that can be expensive. I think our system, uh, they were saying the average ground temperature, like you said, was uh, about 65 degrees. And if you think about it, right, it, it makes sense that it's quite a bit more efficient. If you've got an air source heat pump, which is kind of like what an air conditioner is, you know, an air conditioner that runs in both directions. You know, if it's a, a really cold day here in the south, which might be, I don't know, 25 degrees. I know that's nothing for, for you guys up in mass, but, um, you know, you're asking that that 25, that uh, unit to take that 25 degree air and essentially heat up to, what did you say, 150 degrees or 110 degrees, something I'm like around that? Around 110 degrees, right? Around that's 110. So that's, yep. that's much different than taking 65 degrees and heating it up to 110, right? Exactly. Correct. You mentioned that you're working in this small commercial space, and I imagine that it's a little bit different for folks who are installing a geothermal system in small commercial than what they're used to with an HVAC, you know, putting a unit on the roof or things like that. What, what have some of the challenges been for, um, you know, the clients that you've worked with and, and how have you overcome that? The biggest challenge we face is that people really don't understand how geothermal works. And that is just an education process that takes time. And once they get it, uh, they tend to want to move in that direction. I know for our system, which was a residential system, the cost was almost twice what a normal HVAC system would have been. And really the, the big driver of that was installing the geothermal well. So drilling and, and our system didn't go down nearly as far as, as what yours do for commercial. Um, you know, I think they went down 105 feet. And I'll, I'll tell a story about that here in a little bit. But, uh, you know, is it a similar kind of cost differential when you're looking at a commercial system like like what you guys are selling? It is. It's a, it's a little bit more money for the geothermal well field. Um, but it makes perfect sense because 
you're eliminating those outside condensing units from the cooling mode and you're eliminating your your heating bill on the heating side yeah and then we also have a uh, a, a certain pipe that's patented that we've partnered up with which reduces the amount of holes we actually have to drill by about 33 percent which then reduces the capex cost on on the whole system yeah so let's let's talk a little bit about that because for my system we had to drill six holes they all went down 105 feet um and interestingly enough bedrock starts at about 95 feet so they had to pull the drill back out and put a new bit back on for you know the the last 10 feet or so for each of these holes and it kind of goes down in a star pattern underneath my house and the tubes that they they kind of put down there they're big copper tubes and on one side it's been a while since i've looked at these since they went in the ground but i want to say you know it was maybe like a half an inch diameter and then at the very bottom there was a little orifice and it came back up as about a quarter inch tube uh and depending on whether it's running in heating or cooling mode depends on which you know way the the refrigerant circulates in those tubes what does your your system look like? I mean, is it, it kind of very similar to what what I've got, or is it materially different? Or the you know these pipes that you guys are, are working with, what does that look like? Yeah, it's materially different because we don't send the refrigerant down into the ground. We circulate a water loop, so it's a closed water loop. If you're in the cooling mode, that water's going down warm. It circulates through this HDPE pipe, comes back up at 55 degrees or 65 degrees, depending upon where you are. So it's, a, it's a, actually a much simpler process. It's environmentally friendly. It's just water. We use a special uh, high-density polyurethane uh, pipe in a uh, patented arrangement where there's four tubes going down and four tubes coming back up. Ah, very interesting. Yeah, it makes so, each, each borehole more efficient. Yeah, because like I said, I mean, for our, our system, at least, the drilling was most of the, the additional cost. So I imagine the fewer boreholes you need to drill, the less expensive it is. That's correct. You know, you talked about some of the benefits, you know, you reduce a lot of the energy usage and, and you know, eliminate, uh, you know, heating oil bills and things like that. Um, you even talked about, you know, the the uh, compressor unit, like in our house, we don't have one outside. It's it's in our crawl space. So, you know, that that kind of noisy thing that most people have outside isn't there. Is it, is it a similar kind of situation in a commercial space that, you know, it's it's uh, kind of provides a little bit more of a, a better aesthetic for the building when they've got a geothermal system installed? It does. And they are much more efficient. So um, the geothermal uh, water loop is a very reliable heat sink. So the units tend to run much more efficiently, uh, therefore the compressor is running less often than it would with what you described, which is called an air source heat pump, which exchanges the refrigerant with that outside unit that has a fan blowing across it. Well, in the last few minutes that we've got in this segment here, maybe you can uh, tell us uh, where folks, if they're interested in finding out more about what you guys are doing, uh, where they can find you online. Certainly. We're at uh, earthenergyusa.com. And there's a, a simple information form that can be filled out. We also have a quick two-minute video that explains how geothermal works and um, uh, uh, multiple pages on how the systems work and what they look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can. All, we also talk about the net zero energy approach to really try to take your your whole uh, commercial space, you know, off the grid, go green. So it's it's pretty cool what we're able to do. Ex Excellent. Well, we'll try and uh, tweet out some links from the uh, show's Twitter handle. That's at Matters. Matter, that's at Matters Radio on Twitter. I'm at Casey Boyce, and you can find uh, my co-host Tim Eccles, who will be joining us for the next segment uh, at Tim Eccles. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back with Marcus and Richard from Earth Energy. Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your $1, 2 or $5 checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. 
Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com. ev-hybrid.com. This segment of Energy Matters is sponsored by Hall Booth Smith. This law firm works with over 88 Fortune 500 companies, and they have offices from Brunswick to Athens, Tifton to Columbus, and of course, Atlanta. We'd like to thank Hall Booth Smith for the great work they do with school boards, hospitals, cities, and counties all over our state. See more at hallboothsmith.com. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce. I'm here today with Richard Slowey and Marcus Sintas from Earth Energy, and we are talking all things geothermal. And my co-host, Tim Eccles, has just stepped back in the studio. Tim, how you doing? Yeah, doing great. I'm sorry I missed the previous discussion. I am a fan of, of geothermal, Casey, and good to have these guys with us, have some experts. It just seems like in Georgia, we don't have that many people that are really geothermal fans, Casey. Yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, we had an issue. We were talking on the last segment. Um, you know, my house has geothermal. We had an issue uh, last summer where uh, the compressor went out on our uh, unit. And it took me weeks to find a residential HVAC contractor that was comfortable working with the geothermal unit. So fortunately, we did. Um, there are a couple of them around the state. Interestingly enough, uh, they are not in the Atlanta area. Uh, there's uh, some folks in the Athens area, which is great for our home studio listening area. Uh, there's some out by the coast, which uh, also uh, hits our listening area. So worth researching before you do this on the residential side. But Tim, uh, you got some questions for these guys about uh, the commercial HVAC space and, and kind of how geothermal plays into that. Yeah, guys, thanks for being on our show, Marcus, Richard. Uh, you know, as I have traveled the state, it seems like that the folks who are doing best with geothermal have been either schools or colleges. For example, Young Harris College up uh, in the mountains, they've got geothermal that their president, Kathy Cox, uh, put in. That Agnes Scott College down in Decatur, they've got geothermal in their oldest building, and they were doing a, a complete renovation and chose that opportunity to, de- to do geothermal. And in fact, the place where they drilled their wells, they made it into like a little garden. And then uh, the Raven Gap Nakuchi School, Casey, you know, you work with that retreat center up towards Highlands. You passed the Raven Gap Nakuchi School on the left, and their dormitories are geothermally cooled. Uh, So, I mean, guys, is that the best place when you've got something you know is going to be there for a long, long time? Or is is there a better prospect than, quote, an institution? Yeah, it's... There's a pretty wide prospect base for geothermal. Most commercial buildings that are built or are being built are intended for long-term use. If you look at multifamily, for example, you have apartments and condominium complexes. Those apartment buildings today, uh, the ones that are public housing authority projects are have to build for a 50-year standard. So... New construction in the commercial space is a great place for geothermal. In fact, in Massachusetts, there's been some very recent activity in the last year. The city of Boston is now requiring any project that's over 20,000 square feet to consider geothermal as a heating and cooling source. And the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is now issuing most requests for proposals for new construction to include at least an evaluation on geothermal. So it's a great solution. The government's beginning to recognize it. And I don't think we're going to see anything but an explosion in this marketplace, ultimately. The difficult part right now is explaining to people how uh, easy and how simple it is to install and operate a geothermal system. You know, I, I think that the power company, you know, is not really your ally in this, right? Because, I mean, even the battle between the the electric company and the gas company over essentially stealing gas customers and using rebates to get them i mean we have this ongoing fight between you know the electric and the gas world i can only imagine uh you know the kind of uh the the kind of fighting that geothermal 
has to has to endure because you're you know you're going up against a utility who's trying to you know provide a high efficient uh, heat pump you know and and uh, or a bunch of them or chillers or whatever on the commercial building and they're not really interested in seeing that load go away. Yeah, our biggest upset in the utility market is the natural gas industry. They want to see the heating systems remain. Uh, we don't get any resistance from the electric utilities because the geothermal systems tend to use a, a little bit more electricity. So um, the only people that really are pushing against it are the, are the oil and gas industry. And it's, it's going to come. With the emphasis now on going to a clean climate and uh, moving away from fossil fuel burning, this is the solution. You can completely eliminate the burning of fossil fuels for heating or hot water. And uh, the geothermal is very efficient on the cooling side. I mean, full disclosure, Casey, you know this. I'm not at war against natural gas, right? I'm still a methane fan deep, 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 deep down. I like methane gas, and I like what fracking has done to revitalize industry, manufacturing, you know, in the U.S. and giving us a competitive advantage. There are states, however, that are at war with natural gas and would love to see every single furnace disconnected and replaced with something else. Tim, I'm going to get you a hat emblazoned with that slogan. I'm a fan of methane gas. <laughs> um, so, Richard, I'm, I'm just and for our listeners, I'm sorry, we're going to get a little geeky here for just a minute. But I want to pick up on something that you said. You said that the geothermal uh, tends to use a little bit more electricity. And we've talked on the show before about demand response, including uh, Georgia Power's got a, a temp check program that's for residential customers that helps shift some of the load to periods that aren't as, as highly stressed on the grid. When you think about geothermal and, and compared to a kind of standard air source heat pump, are, is your load for a commercial building, is it on par with what an air source heat pump would look like? Is it a little bit higher? Like as utilities, electric utilities are thinking about, okay, there's going to be more geothermal potentially on, on our system. Is that an opportunity for them to shift load around uh, to help manage grid conditions? Or is it less so because of the efficiency of the system? So let's just back up a, a step. When you go all electric on a commercial building, you're using some form of a heat pump, whether it's a uh, heat pump fan pack unit or, as you mentioned, a chiller or a chiller heater. Um, it's actually less electricity. When you move from uh, natural gas as a source for your heat to an all-electric, yes, there's a little bit of an increase in electrical usage. But when you then bring in a geothermoelectric system, there's less of a demand. To step out of the wonk zone and back to, to Tim's question about, you know, what's the ideal, uh, you know, place to install these? Obviously, we've got a lot of or, or a number, I guess I should say, of institutions in Georgia that have installed geothermal uh, heating and cooling systems. And you've, you've talked about how they t they cost a little bit more because of the drilling. You know, we talked a bit in the first segment on that. But during the break, Richard, you said something really interesting, which is that you can often finance these in a way that that net it ends up being less expensive for a commercial building to install geothermal than for them to stay on natural gas. Can you talk a little bit more about that and help, you know, maybe some of our listeners who own some of these buildings or do some of this uh, commercial development kind of think about, you know, what are the finances uh, look like okay, here? Yeah, a great example might be an apartment complex. So if we took a, an apartment building or a series of buildings where we have maybe 150 apartments, the overall cost to put a geothermal well field in to create that water loop that's going to provide the heating and the cooling is somewhere around $7,000 an apartment. And if you apply the tax credit that's available for the geothermal and seek out any incentives or rebates that may be available from the local government or the utility company, um, you can get that cost down where if you finance that over 20 years, your rate per apartment would be the same as an average rate for the natural gas bill. So really, if you wrap in the financing, it, it makes sense from an economic standpoint, certainly makes sense from an environmental standpoint. I mean, right, uh, in terms of displacing the, the fossil fuel use, Correct. right? Yep. Yeah, so Casey, you know, as a prospect for customers, or if you're a firm that is offering you know, geothermal cooling, 
you're looking for people that know they're going to be there 20 years at least. And a lot of a lot of institutions, government buildings, uh, colleges, universities, elementary schools, high schools, these are all fantastic prospects. You know, for me, I put I put that solar thermal on my house in Athens and I wound up moving, you know, after three years and it was really a 15 year payback. I don't regret doing it because it helped me kind of, you know, wade into the water on clean energy. But we do want to help people, you know, experience the savings on this show, right? I mean, part of what we say every week is helping you save money on your power bill. And so, you know, this is just, you know, a, a, you know, a warning to all of our listeners. Look, you know, as you consider technology investments, you know, make sure that it's going to work for you and consider all things, including geothermal, which we're talking about today. Yeah, so in the last minute or so before uh, we wrap up the segment, um, one of the things that I have uh, seen here and there is this idea of geothermal as a utility. That is, you put in a a well field um, that multiple buildings or multiple residences can attach to. And Richard, you were talking about the state of Massachusetts requiring new commercial buildings to at least consider geothermal as part of the design process. Is this idea of geothermal as a utility uh, that multiple customers could connect into is this something that you see as a potential down the road or is it still too early to to tell yeah there's uh, several studies underway in the northeast at the moment for geothermal districts that's what they call them geothermal districts where they actually install the borehole wells around the neighborhood and then they circulate um, a, a, a master pipe down the street and around the block and uh, Massachusetts, I think, has recently launched two programs, and Connecticut has a, uh, a program underway as well as well as uh, New York State. So the effect of that study and the result of that study is yet, still yet to be determined. But in the commercial space, it definitely makes sense. Well, Richard, Marcus, thank you for being on uh, with us in the second half of this show, and good luck in all that you're doing. Folks, thanks for listening to Energy Matters. We want you to save money on your power bill, to use technology wisely, and to live a more sustainable life. I'm Tim Eccles. Have a great day, everyone. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. Gerd and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com.